0: Yes, he does. He has the right stuff when it comes to talking about the economy, the labor market, Fed policy. Uh, Josh Wright, back with us, chief economist at iSIMS in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in a day that Fed Chairman Jay Powell repeated the case that he's laid out for raising interest rates to keep the world's largest economy on uh, a sustainable growth path. Hi, nice to have you back.
1: Great to be back.
0: Hey, listen, you know, we were going through uh, Joe Weisenthal earlier. uh, Bloomberg Markets was talking a little bit about, uh, I guess, some of the comments from Mr. Powell earlier. And one of the things he noticed with the labor market is he said that, you know, maybe because conditions are so tight, that It might lead, may already maybe be leading companies, businesses to invest in technology and training, right, which he sees, Powell, should support uh, productivity growth. Um, And the thinking is, too, that maybe then the next downturn, you've also got workers with more skills. Um, You watch the labor market. Tell me what you're finding interesting right now.
1: Yeah, I think that uh, those comments are spot on. We see it in the data, actually, that we've got declining unemployment at long last for people who are younger, teens, their unemployment uh, rate has come down, as well as people with less education. So people without a high school uh, diploma, at long last, their unemployment rate is converging towards the other unemployment rates. When you look at the composition of who's unemployed, you can see that employers are straining and reaching into other kinds of labor pools. They're getting creative to bring in more talent. And then they're also, you know, that just stands to reason that they're increasing their labor expense in two forms. One, through their actual recruiting efforts to go and find these people. And then presumably younger age, less education, probably lower skilled. There's probably a little bit more training going on, more learning on the job. That is an implicit form of labor expense for the employers.
0: Well, that's what I was just going to say. So it'll be interesting as we get to the next quarterly earnings release, whether we hear from more CEOs and executives saying, yep, we're finding workers, but it's costing us more to find them.
1: That's right. And the other thing that you've got to bear in mind is that there's a lot that's changing the technology of recruiting as well. So people are investing in their Systems, Um, they're thinking about what's the most efficient way to use their people to go and leverage those networks uh, to reach out and find that talent. Um, But of course, there's also you mentioned the quarterly earnings. It will be interesting to hear if they respond to uh, if their comments of the CEOs in the quarterly earnings reports correspond to something else that Fed Chair Powell said this morning, where he said um, that uh, that. He's hearing anecdotally from business contacts that there are these concerns about the trade tensions, yeah. that that is affecting hiring affecting hiring as well as investment. Right. Now, that's not seen in the data yet. So that might be one of the first indicators is whether or not that it's uh, a topic of conversation for the quarterly earnings reports.
0: Yeah, that's kind of fascinating. I mean, I think we all are trying to figure out too – like I started off our broadcast saying, OK, yesterday we were all freaked out because of trade. And today we're like, eh, not so much. You know, what has really dramatically changed? And I, I don't quite understand that. Well, I think
1: markets have a really tough time trying to price tail risk. And this is something we saw during the global financial crisis. Right. It's something we saw during um, the fiscal cliff and debt ceiling debates Tail risk years ago. meaning
0: more? Trade tariffs to come because some yes. of them have already been imposed. We know what they're right. impacting. We've seen, we've done the stories that it's you know 0.01 percent of Chinese GDP or 0.01. Like it's such a minute amount. Same thing for the U.S. So we have been able to kind of figure out what the impact, but we're just kind of waiting. Okay, what's the next shoe to drop?
1: Yeah, the tail risk is that it escalates. Okay, we've got this debate going. Is it a trade skirmish? Is it a trade tensions? Is it a trade war? There's no strict definition. You just
0: said it faster than I did. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but, but the right. tail risk is that this gets out of control and right. Right now, we see this bias in markets towards kind of we're, gonna, we're not going to do anything crazy that this is a lot of bluffing and someone's going to find some way to de-escalate. And that's kind of what we saw back in the fiscal cliff scenario. Right. But that might not be what actually happens.
0: You guys, though, you do crunch a lot of data, particularly on the labor market. That's right. What are the other trends that you're, that you're seeing?
1: Well, we're seeing applicants per position decline um, across a lot of different industries. So that's a clear sign of the labor market getting uh, tighter. It's just harder to go and find people. Something we're looking into as well is… Every industry? Across industries. I mean, it varies how much, but it's a broad-based trend. Um, And what we're hearing from clients as well is um, that they're focused a lot on their geographic labor market, their labor pool locally, not just in terms of industry or skills in particular. Right. Because they're saying, we're all competing with Amazon. We're competing with them on the business side because they're trying to eat our lunch and they're entering our markets, but they're also entering our labor markets and they're competing with us for talent. Especially at the lower end, where you're dealing with manual workers, people who could work in fulfillment centers, whether it's food prep or retail trade, those people are getting sucked away.
0: So what do you think of – I've got to pull it up. The GDP now forecast was – excuse me, something like 4.6 percent or something for the second quarter. Is that just crazy or what?
1: Um, well, it's crazy good for the moment. We'll see whether or not it can be sustained.
2: But do you buy it?
1: Well, there's a very significant amount of stimulus that has passed into the economy, sure. You've got tax cuts and spending. And then in addition, you've got this head of steam. Um, We're coming off a little bit of that feeling of synchronized global growth. Things are looking a little bit shakier abroad. Um, that's. I mean, we're not going to sustain that. Why does this economy – also Q1 was not so strong. It's the other thing to remember. So there's a little bit of payback.
0: Okay, fair enough. I mean, why does it feel like, though – I feel like so many people are moaning and groaning, though, about kind of where we are in the economic cycle, that it doesn't feel so great. Why doesn't it? Is Pe- it just go back to wages?
1: People like to complain is one thing, and no one wants to be seen I'm a glass half declaring kind victory. Of gal.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead.
1: No one wants to stand under the banner that says mission accomplished when you've got a lot of economic pain out there. And we know that there have been a lot of dislocations right. and what we call distributional effects across the labor market and across the economy. So I think that's an important part of it. it. Look, the reality is that it is a very dynamic and disruptive time in the American economy. So even though aggregate growth is very strong, you have a lot of winners and losers at the company level as well as at the worker level. So they're always going to be people who are concerned about that if they're not on the right end of that
0: recession i've been talking to folks this week uh david rosenberg over at gluskin chef some other folks uh some say 2020 some say
1: 2019 uh i guess they do <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're not gonna yeah. tell me
1: i i think that yeah certainly the risk is rising um we're gonna see what... because of
0: fed policy that they just overshoot
1: I, I don't think that that's very likely. I think yeah. the Fed is being so measured. I
0: feel like it, they are, too. Cer-
1: certainly, that's a risk. It could happen. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly, when I look at that, the probabilities are rising. I think more of, that's more of a 2020 scenario than a 2019 scenario. But personally, I'm more concerned about the tail risk. We've got a, lot of, got a lot of young traders. And we've got a lot of algorithmic trading out
0: there. And right, it hits a certain level and things just kick in. And it just we've got to follow the momentum or the momentum just happens. Josh Wright, thank you so much. Happy almost spring. Summer. Happy (laughs) Happy almost summer. summer. He's Chief Economist at ISIMS in our New York studio. You're listening to Bloomberg. So President Trump um, said to sign an executive order to keep immigrant families together. this would reverse his insistence that only Congress could end his policy president trump 's policy of separating children from parents who are caught illegally crossing the u s border with mexico it 's been certainly our top story, I would say safely say this week, uh, certainly on a geopolitical or political uh, front. In the meantime, children continuing to be detained in facilities that we are slowly finding more information about these facilities. That brings us to Alex Wayne, White House team leader at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg 991 studio in Washington, D.C. Um, Safe to say, Alex, the news is kind of fast and furious uh, today in terms of uh, what's happening. For um these immigrants, and what policy or or executive order the trump uh, President Trump may ultimately sign, tell us though a little bit about the reporting that Bloomberg News has been doing on these detention centers, where the children are being held
3: so we've been looking into who runs these centers, where they're located, uh, how many kids are there, and it turns out that uh, the the biggest operator in in what's kind of a cottage industry of um, of child detention. Um, is a, a nonprofit called Southwest, uh, Southwest Key Programs based in Austin. Uh, they are set to uh, be paid $458 million this year by the federal government.
0: Half a billion uh, dollars.
3: Half a billion dollars mm-hmm. uh, to, to participate in this Uh, This what they call the unaccompanied alien children program. Um, This is not just children taken from their parents. It's also children who cross the border uh, on their own. And that's actually there's that's actually a larger number Out of about 12,000 kids in in custody. 10,000 are came here on their own without their parents.
0: Right. And this is obviously a very human interest story, and uh, yeah. that's a big part of, of what we've all been talking about this week. But I do find it interesting that you guys are digging into this to try to understand where these children are going. Because I don't, I don't think... We, as a public or as a country, really understood some of what yeah. happens uh, when when immigrants are detained, particularly kids. Tell us what we know about these facilities and about the southwest key programs
3: yeah, you know it 's been kind of a, a simmering story actually for yeah. years now I, under the obama administration he was he was faced with this the same sort of uh, humanitarian crisis on the border that. That the pre- the current president is dealing with in his own way, uh, and Ob- and Obama detained a lot of children. He detained uh, uh, c- children who came across the border on their own. If they came across with their with their with their parents, uh, they were generally issued notices to appear in court and send them their way. But if children came across on their own, they got detained by by Obama. That's where these these centers started springing up from. This mm-hmm. uh, this nonprofit uh, Southwest Key programs uh, saw their their revenues start to really climb. Uh, about uh, 2012 or so, when uh, when when uh, unaccompanied children appearing at the border really became a crisis. Um, so what, what
0: what do we know about what's going on inside these centers? Um, I know that there have been members of Congress. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we keep talking yeah. about the one that was a former Walmart in Brownsville. Yeah, right. Uh, is right. it That's Texas? That's a Southwest
3: Keep facility. Yeah, it's in Brownsville, Texas. Uh, we have sent a reporter to that that facility, mm-hmm. uh, and and she's not been allowed to to tour it. Uh, some members of Congress have gotten in. I do believe the government has done uh, one tour of of the former Walmart, and uh, and also I believe there's been one tour of a of a Customs and Border Patrol detention facility, which is an entirely different system, mm-hmm. by the way. Um, People are not. Kids are not allowed to stay with Customs and Border Patrol for longer than three days. Then they have to be turned over to to the HHS system.
0: But some of the kids have been there for months. <clears throat> safe to say,
3: that's in the HHS system. Yes, uh, the average length of stay is fifty seven days. We're, wow. We were told today by by HHS.
0: And these are young kids as well, correct?
3: Uh, yeah, we don't know the exact age range, but we 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 are, uh, we are. So some members of Congress told us that they visited a, a uh, another center run by Southwest Key where they encountered children younger than 1. The tender age
0: facilities is that what yeah. they call them?
3: Yeah, tender age, yeah. Um wh-
0: it's a non-profit. I don't mm-hmm. uh, Is that normal? Like I'm trying to understand.
3: Yeah, it's a pretty funky nonprofit. profit okay. It's uh, got a couple of apparent for-profit businesses attached to it in okay. Austin. They pay their CEO, well let me let me put it this way. Their CEO's compensation in 2016 was a $1 million and a half. According to tax records filed by another nonprofit, is associated
0: with. Right, we don't know where all that money's coming from. Correct, we
3: don't. we don't. But safe to safe to say, a lot of it comes from uh, taxpayers of the United States.
0: Now, to be fair, um, God forbid, I had a child in an immigration center uh, mm-hmm. or detention center. I don't know that I would want everybody parading through, True. you know, to see. Yeah. So I understand why they might be careful. But do we know anything about the care? Just got about. 20 seconds here, 25 seconds.
3: We've not heard many serious allegations that kids are, are, are poorly cared for at these centers. That doesn't seem to be a problem. I think the main issue is that they're there in the first place.
0: And I know there's some stories out there, Alex, just quickly, where uh, folks have been reporting that it would be cheaper to actually keep these kids who have been separated from their parents with their parents.
3: Yeah, NBC had a good story today. That Not only that, but these tent cities that the government is now building to house some of these kids are even more expensive than keeping them in, say, a former Walmart.
0: Well, as always, you guys doing some amazing reporting. Um, Alex, thank you so much. Alex Wayne, he's our White House team leader at Bloomberg News, joining us from our Bloomberg 991 studio in the nation's capital. Hey! Oh! Everybody, the House of Mouse close to linking up with the Fox. We're talking about Disney's planned acquisition of 21st Century Fox's entertainment assets, beating out. A competing bid from Comcast, at least it looks that way. Let's get more from Tuna Mobi, media and entertainment analyst at CFRA Research, joining us on the phone right here in New York City. Also with us, Nabila Ahmed, our media M&A reporter at Bloomberg News. Nabila, I do want to start with you, the
4: latest. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is moving fast and furiously. I mean, Disney had to do something, right, by today? No, actually, Disney had a bit of time, so that was a surprise. We knew that they were going to come back, but actually they didn't have to do anything until the Fox board said, Comcast, we like your offer better. Disney, what do you say about that? <laughs> and, um, and them, like lighting a little fire yeah on you. so we were still I mean we they could have waited a few weeks but so that's why it's really aggressive move today what they've come out and done and really up until now our sources had been saying listen we don't need to match the price of Comcast we think our bid has a better chance through the regulatory process so we don't even have to go as high as they've gone and today they've come out and not only have they gone as high they've beaten the headline price and they've also restructured their deal so now it can be a stock or a cash offer or a mix of both if you want a Boy. shareholder,
0: this is a company that wants to get it done right. Disney's offer, seventy-one billion, and uh, Comcast is sixty-five. Tuna, come on in on this. Um, is there a combination you prefer?
5: I think it was not unexpected that um, you know uh, Disney was going to throw in some some cash just to try to level the playing field a little bit. You also have to remember the uh, you know the two offers on the table are very different in terms of the tax. Considerations where I think the all-stock uh, Disney's deal, from a perspective of Fox shareholders, I think um, provides a little bit of uh, tax, um, you know, advantages. Having said that, I think, you know, if you're if you're Fox, you have to look at the two deals at this point um, and see how further along Disney seems to uh, have a head start on the regulatory process. So while we're not ruling out the possibility that Comcast could, in fact, come up with a higher offer, at some point you have to make a determination. Um, you know, how, much is, uh, how much longer do you want to wait and the related uncertainty that could come with a Comcast offer as opposed to Disney, uh, which is now uh, six months into the integration process. I still believe that the Fox shareholders have some preference for, uh, for the Disney offer. That's why we think it has, it has a better chance, uh, given today's development, where I think the actions of Disney was quite aggressive in fact, more aggressive than we expected. So the ball is now in Comcast court to see what they're going to do. Right. Uh, but all, all things being equal, we still think Disney has an edge.
0: Does Fox, Nabil? are you hearing anything about, um, I keep saying this, Jimmy Lee of J.P. Morgan, formerly um well-known um, Giant, right, yeah. in terms of M&A. And I do recall him you know, sitting in his office talking about M&A, and he said, you know, you really look for deals where the CEOs get along. And I'm just curious, is there an edge? Does Rupert Murdoch get along better with Bob Iger
4: versus Mr. Roberts over at Comcast? Does any of that play into it? Well, listen, I mean, they're going to be out of it, right? So the Murdoch family will Doesn't not care. have – yeah, they, would, they won't true. have a part in that anymore. So that doesn't matter so much. Yeah, but initially, wouldn't you rather sell
0: something to someone you like more than someone you don't, pronounce? Listen, there are so many
4: moguls in the media world. <laughs> Somebody you might like today you probably didn't like yesterday. <laughs> so and it's probably going to change tomorrow. But Comcast and Disney have had history. Like Comcast went after Disney a few years ago, maybe more than a decade ago now. So there's some history there. Right. Rupert Murdoch's, you know, known to fall in and out of people as well. One of the things initially when they were talking to Disney Fox. When Fox was talking to Disney, there was a, a possibility that James Murdoch might have a role in the new company in Disney. In, right. In the, in Disney. right. Um, however, that's not on the cards anymore. Partly because he has said that he wants to do his own thing. So it's not. There's no real personal stake in it, any, in it anymore for the Murdochs, other than the fact that they like they like the idea of owning Disney stock post this transaction. Right. And a stock deal is better for them on a tax. Uh, Basis. What,
0: what what really struck me too after the disney offer came out and then tuna we had a story that said disney's close to winning us antitrust approval for its do- for its deal according to those in the know does it uh, help me understand that has disney been talking to folks in washington over the last week to say hey if we come out you know can we you know do have they do they already kind of know what's going to happen
5: Well, I think Bob Iger alluded to that on the call today. Um, So the initial deal was announced in December, and the clock started to tick at that time. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of information has already been provided to U.S. regulators. At this point in the process, six months in, you should have a pretty good idea um, of how the process is unfolding. So my sense is that it is moving quite well, which right. is one reason that I alluded to that Disney may have an edge. Uh, and beyond that, uh, Bob has actually been working with a lot of divisional heads at Fox uh, in terms of the nitty-gritty details of the integration, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, again, provides um, an advantage from a regulatory perspective. But back to your earlier question, Carol. Um, you know, So in terms of the potential culture issue, I do believe that, uh, Fox uh, and Murdoch, in fact, have uh, a preference for for Disney's offer. Not only does that allow them to participate. Uh, remember, the Fox shareholders would own not about 19% of a combined company under today's offer from Disney, which not only allows them uh, to participate in the upside, but I do believe much as uh, the Murdochs are going to be disengaged, but I, I do believe that uh, will retain uh, some type of influence. Um, you know, from a, from a shareholder perspective as opposed right. to the Comcast all-cash offer, where I never really believed that an all-cash deal is what they kind of right. would have put the company on the block just to begin with.
0: And Nabil, let's remind everybody, right? The The Murdoch family
4: controls this company the Murdoch family definitely does control the company Uh, however when it comes to the vote they were only going to vote their economic interest which is about 17 percent so they can't actually push through a deal that shareholders don't want okay so they really do have to do
0: best uh, for shareholders I'm curious Nabila when you look at the media and entertainment space if indeed Disney goes ahead everything gets done regulators sign off on it does Comcast have to do something then?
4: Yes, Comcast has to do something. And there are other assets out there that they could probably cobble together that would look similar to the Fox assets. There's like Discovery, which is cable and it has international businesses. Lionsgate, the movie studio, is up for sale. It's has about been content, for a while. right? It's about content. And so for Disney, this is about the content that they can put on their over, uh, over the top, their direct-to-consumer service, which is beginning next year. That's why they need to do it. Comcast also needs content um, because the content's king. and I mean, but, you know, like, (laughs) if you're going to compete with Netflix, which is spending $8 billion this year on content, you're going to need to do something more than what you're doing already. Yeah, exactly. Um, Tuna, got about 40 seconds left here. Who do you see maybe has to do something
0: in the M&A space for entertainment and media?
5: Well, I I think right now, of course, we've got the CBS and Viacom. Those are always prime candidates. I'm sure they're taking notice of of this. I think the AT&T Time Warner um, ruling does open some floodgates uh, to cannot perhaps consolidate more mo- among the smaller to mid-sized players. Um, And, um, you know, having said that, I I do believe, uh, you know, that uh, this deal, um, Comcast, um, sorry, uh, Disney Fox, should set the template of what to expect in terms of big media consolidation.
0: I love the media space. It's like, all of a sudden, there's a flurry of deals, and it quiets down. (laughs) It's so much fun. Tuna Moby, thank you. Media and Entertainment Analyst at CFRA Research on the phone in New York. And, of course, our thanks to Nabila Ahmed. She's been busy, and my guesses will be even busier. Uh, Media M&A reporter (laughs) (laughs) in Bloomberg News. It's not even Summer yet. All right, this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Markets with Carol Messer on Bloomberg Radio. Craig Johnson is with us, president at Customer Growth Part, and he's someone who spent uh, a long time in the retail space and private equity space. Uh, he's got the company's annual back to school forecast. Done. nice to have you here with us.
6: Glad to be here, Carol. I can't believe
0: we're talking about back to school. My daughter just finished. <laughs> I'm so glad. Some to kids take are still break. in school now. <laughs> exactly. Um, all right, what did you guys find? First of all, tell me what you looked at specifically. What kind of questions and what kind of data were you uh, gathering?
6: Well, we have a team of 18 people across the country that are in the stores literally every week. Right. Same stores, same venues across about 100 venues. Plus, we have someone in London. And so we have a longitudinal database that we capture and allows us to have a highly accurate forecast. So last year, for instance, back to school was up about 4.3%. and We were like at 4.1, 4.2, just fractionally below. This year, year to date, retail is up a very strong almost 5%. Wow. Overall retail, all yeah. sectors. Okay. Uh, excluding, you know, retail. So restaurants much for retail
0: being dead. Yeah, so <laughs> no, it,
6: it's retail is really doing quite, yeah. best in at least about half a dozen years. Right. And then. If you're the
0: right retailer.
6: <laughs> <laughs> if you're the right retailer, exactly. So at any rate, um, uh, uh, we're seeing very strong growth, and this year, um, May itself was up 5.7 percent, which is really robust growth. That's, That's about as strong as it can get. Hmm. Now that does represent some deferred demand because remember we had a long cold spring, right. the delayed winter, and all that.
0: People getting their tax um, returns. And, uh, yeah,
6: that, and then also over the last couple of months, um, gasoline prices have been spiked. Now they're leveling off now, but they're 60 percent higher six uh, sixty cents on the dollar uh, a, a gallon higher now than they were a year ago. That's equivalent to $10 billion a month out of consumer spending. So that's a big hit. And even with that, sales are up year-to-date almost 5%. Right. And so what we're looking at is we haven't finalized. There's still some new data points we can hope to get in between now and the 4th of July. But based on what we're seeing now, we think we may well beat last year's already pretty good 4.3% uh, uh, growth rate for back-to-school. It could, could almost approach 5%, and that would be the strongest since since before the recession.
0: That's pretty significant. So that's back-to-school. But when you say back-to-school, is it just back-to-school kinds of items? Or are you really looking at no, the, the broader the, retail the space? the
6: entire sector. Right. The, there are a couple sectors that have nothing to do with back-to-school. The home improvement, people like Home yeah. Depot and I'm Lowe's. not buying a two-by-four yeah. for my daughter to take to school. Right. <laughs> and we exclude uh, groceries, you know, food and beverage. But all the other sectors, whether it's Um, home furnishings, you know, because the whole back-to-dorm thing, whether it's apparel, of course, department stores, discount stores, online, obviously. So all the other sectors are in it, and it's those that comprise what we look like maybe a a bit above 4.3% this year. And your
0: just general analysis, is it because um, people have more money uh, in their pocket? You talked about gas prices. Is it as simplistic as that? Well,
6: it's not quite as simple, but it it doesn't take rocket scientists, is it? Right now we have 2.6% 2.6 million more jobs now than a year ago. More jobs means more income. Right. And for the first time in decades the number of job openings is bigger than the number of job seekers. So what that means is there's rising pressure on wages. We went through a, you know, a good decade of slow growth, no growth, and in real mm-hmm. incomes. Now we're seeing some fairly decent growth. Not as much as we'd like, but it's actually decent growth. So there's more jobs and more uh, and higher incomes. That combination leads to higher disposable income. We've practiced for, for years that the single best determinant of, of consumer retail sales right. is not consumer confidence or anything else – It's growth in real disposable income, and that's what we've been having.
0: Right. It's not, well, I feel like good, and maybe I'll go shopping. It's I've got more money in my pocket, and I can go shopping.
6: It's a big difference.
0: Uh, When you look at the retail sector and you divide it up a little bit, um, just quickly, uh, just got about 25 seconds here, uh, which part of retail is the
6: strongest? Well, overall, anything home-related tends to be the strongest. That includes, again, home improvement as well as home furnishings. Then apparel is up almost 5% this year. And it's been years since apparel's been up like that, and for back to school, particularly teens is strong and kids is strong. Kids and kids and teen is both strong. Absolutely. And is it
0: still people um, doing spending money on their homes and stuff? That's still also that,
6: that's st- that's still occurring. Yeah, absolutely. Now, some of the stuff for the home itself, that really, the it's, it's home improvement, that is less important for back to school. But uh, the other area that's very big is still consumer electronics. Yeah. You know, whether it's Best Buy, Apple, I mean, these kids go wired off to college.
0: I recently saw a story about uh, a new phone. I think it was from Samsung, and they're saying it might be double what the iPhone 10 was. So we're talking about maybe a $2,000 cell phone. It's, yes. like, unbelievable. Thank you for checking in with us. Optimism, certainly when it comes to retail. Craig Johnson, president of Customer Growth Partners based in New Canaan, Connecticut, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets, and this is Bloomberg.
2: I'm driving my car. Turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me. I want to drive.
5: Just drive,
2: baby. Just drive, baby. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. Yeah.
6: This is The Drive to the Close. That punky music will
2: drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All
0: right, everybody, time for The Drive to the Close. We've just got about 10 minutes left in today's trading session. Chris Cordero, Chief Investment Officer at Region Atlantic, joining us on this Wednesday. They've got roughly $3.5 billion in assets under management. Uh, Chris joining us on the phone from Morristown, New Jersey. How are you, Chris?
2: I'm doing great, thanks.
0: So um, tell me the kind of calls you're getting from your clients.
2: All right, the biggest calls we're getting is on the trade war, and uh, and you know, just getting concerns about what does this mean overall for the U.S. economy, and what, and more importantly, what does it mean for our clients' portfolios?
0: Do you feel like you have enough information yeah. to make that assessment at this point?
2: um at, at this point no I mean what' I'm, what I'm telling clients is that um, is that this is really not an all out war yet this is um, this is two this is two neighbors throwing rocks at each other so you know we're throwing rocks at China and they're throwing rocks at us so we it, it's not it hasn't got to the point where we really have artillery out but the problem is we're throwing rocks at China and, and we live in a house with the biggest windows
0: you know it's interesting I think investors in general are liking back some of the roll rollback on regulations and so on and so on. So forth, and I feel like uh, the, the tax overhaul. A lot of businesses like it, right? Lower taxes that are being paid. Um, so I think a lot of folks might agree with what this administration is doing. Do they agree that trade policy though needs to be renegotiated?
2: No, I, uh, not not <laughs> okay. by and large for my clients. You know, right. the, the, interesting. I have a client who is a um, sells steel products, and so he imports most of this. Stainless steel that he sells, and so for him, you know, I asked him how things are going. He said, "Well, you know what? All of my inventory that I have, I just got to mark that up twenty-five wow. percent because, you know, that's that's the tariff." And so he just got a twenty-five percent pop. And said, "Well, geez, that's great." He said, "No, not really, because now when I go to replace my inventory, mm-hmm. I don't know what the business climate looks like. It's just bred confusion for. He doesn't know what's going on, and so how can you run a business?" When you can't really plan for your next quarter or your next year because you don't know what the tariffs and regulations are going to be meantime so that that yeah that that puts it you know that just makes it so difficult for him and for all business owners that are in the same spot. no,
0: I love you telling that story because I think we talk at things um from a very macro broad level sometimes, but then when you actually hear like yourself, telling about someone you're talking to, a business owner, and they've got to make decisions. They have to make. They are making business decisions already on some of the trade talk that's that's going back and forth. Even if we, as journalists or other analysts, are saying, wait a minute, it's just a small percentage of GDP. It's not going to be a big deal. It, you know, Take it down to the micro level, and it's impacting um, folks. Having said that, Companies, look at Disney, they're moving ahead with their deal, you know, plan to buy, you know, those entertainment assets of 21st century facts. You do have companies nonetheless moving ahead, making decisions. Um, And you've got to make investment decisions. One of the names you like is Walmart.
2: Yes. Why? You know, uh so we we like walmart especially when you when you when you come into this whole decision Walmart and Amazon where do you fall Look, we're i 'm a value guy i've got to go i 've got to go with walmart walmart 's a great value story where they know how to make money on razor thin margins and so far Amazon- it's uh, volume, it 's called volume isn 't it it's called yeah they 've got lots of volume, but they haven 't figured out how to make money at it and so I, I favor Walmart. The other thing, Walmart has been reinvesting back into itself and back into its technology, so that it's at a much better place to compete with Amazon because it knows how to do the bricks and mortar, and now it is making investments um, into into the cloud and, and into and into e-marketing. And so, I, I think in the end, uh, someone that uh, has really built their business on making money in in a low-margin environment, there, I think I think I favor them much more. And especially, I'm not paying a huge multiple for their stock.
0: Right. It's also going to be interesting, depending on where this economic cycle and market cycle go, ultimately we'll hit a recession at some point. Names like Walmart tend to do well because most of their goods are pretty inexpensive or their te- their goods tend to be priced. I think it's f- it's safe to say in a much more competitive way. The stock's down it- almost 24 percent since uh, late, January.
2: Yes, um, and it's down. You know, uh, when you when you look at just what's gone on in the overall market, you've got a big disparity between growth stocks and value stocks. And you know, Walmart's more of a value stock, so it has uh, it has lagged behind the the overall market. Um, but you know we invest, we invest looking out the windshield, and I think that Walmart is a terrific value I think it 's a really well run company and I, I think for uh, the type of economic environment that we may be going into mm-hmm. this is this is something that really needs a place in your portfolio.
0: you also think alphabet, the parent of Google, is also a value stock estimated p e of about twenty seven stocks up about twelve percent this year w- uh, explain this one
2: yeah that, well that 's one of those ones just to, 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 that, um when you when you look when you look at digital advertising and what Google can do in that space and they really own it they um, they're they're, uh, they're selling at a decent value for someone who really has a corner on that market and they are just they they are going to continue to increase their revenues and increase their profits and get and get more profitable over time so you know this is a Google's one of those stocks where um, when it's cheap you should buy it and uh and right now it's cheap, it doesn't always stay cheap,
0: not to mention that they've got what hundred and two billion a hundred and three billion on their balance sheet as of the end of uh March of this year. that's a lot of money
2: yes, yeah, so a lot of money and they and they you know they invest their money i i would uh, I'd favor if they if they uh distributed um, some of that more, money to shareholders because <laughs> I don't know they can prudently invest all of it yeah. um, but it, yeah. you know they, they do make investments
0: all right got to run hey Chris thanks so much Chris Cordero Chief Investment Officer over at Regent Atlantic uh, approximately three and a half billion dollars in assets under management Chris on the phone from Morristown New Jersey Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.